Good morning. I'm Tyler Martin, and here's the latest from Spectrum Autism Research. Hollis Klein, Leapfrogging Over Gaps in Autism Research by Lara DeTaro. Early in her first postdoctoral position, Hollis Klein first showed her hallmark flair for creative problem-solving. Klein, who goes by Holly, and her advisor, neuroscientist Martha Constantine Patton, wanted to study the brain's topographical maps, internal representations of sensory input from the external world. These maps are thought to shape a person's ability to process sensory information, filtering that can go awry in autism and other neurodevelopmental conditions. No one knew just how these maps formed or what could potentially disrupt them. Klein and Constantine Patton, who was then at Yale University and is now Emerita Professor of Brain and Cognitive Sciences at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, weren't sure how to find out. But as a first step, the pair decided to take the plunge with an unusual animal model, the frog, specifically a spotted greenish-brown species called ranapipians, or the northern leopard frog. The amphibians spend two to three months as tadpoles, a span during which their brains change rapidly and visibly, unlike in mammals which undergo similar stages of development inside of the mother's body. These traits made it possible for Klein and Constantine Patton to introduce changes and repeatedly watch their efforts in real time. That's an extended period when you can actually have access to the developing brain, Klein says. The unorthodox approach paid off. Klein, aged 66, now professor of neuroscience at the Scripps Research Institute in La Jolla, California, worked out that a receptor for the neurotransmitter glutamate, which had been shown to be important for learning and memory, also mediated how visual experiences influenced the developing topographical map. She later created a novel live imaging technique to visualize frog neurons' development over time and, sticking with frogs over the ensuing decades, went on to make fundamental discoveries about how sensory experiences shape brain development and sensory processing. Such innovation and persistence characterize Klein's prolific career and have made her an especially collaborative scientist, colleagues say. One of the great things about Holly has always been that she's been able to work and find solutions to problems others have made into obstacles, says Scott Fraser, professor of biology at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. As a reward for her efforts, Klein has twice served as president of the Society for Neuroscience in 2015 and 2016 has published more than 200 papers, which have been cited more than 17,000 times, according to Google Scholar, and has been recognized with several mentorship awards. And she continues to extend her scientific reach and innovate, including a recent turn to stem cell models in search of answers about Rett syndrome. There's no limit, says Linda Van Alst, professor of cancer research at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in New York, She goes for it, if that will answer a question. Klein's love for the lab started young. As a child, she was captivated by her mother's work as a lab technician, which she started as soon as Klein, the youngest of three, entered school. Klein so wanted to be in the lab that she regularly faked being sick to miss school and tag along. Her mother, who earned a doctorate in biochemistry in 1965, let her get away with the ruse. 
Klein studied biology at Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania and made plans to follow in her mother's footsteps. But in 1977, during her final year, she took a neurobiology course and switched gears. I was totally enamored with it, Klein says. So enamored, in fact, that she set aside her graduate school applications and instead took a job as a research technician in endocrinologist Martin Sonnenberg's lab at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. She often walked across the street to attend neuroscience seminars at Rockefeller University, and in 1979, she was ready for graduate school, this time in neuroscience, at the University of California, Berkeley, where another chance encounter once again redirected her career. Klein, who was studying the role of cell lineage in brain development, had to write a paper outside of her direct area of interest to fulfill a school requirement. She focused on the development of the visual system and happened upon a question that would motivate her entire career. How does sensory experience help shape the brain's development? After reading Constantine Patton's 1984 paper on the visual system's development in frogs, Klein decided to return to the East Coast in 1985 to study with her. Initially, they decided to try to unpack how tinkering with the glutamate receptor alters visual system development in frogs, which other teams had demonstrated in goldfish and cats. They found that when they blocked the same receptor in optical cells in the tadpole's brains, visual signals no longer shaped the map. What's more, the axons of signal-transmitting cells called retinal ganglion cells spread across a wider area and produced a more scattered topographical map. Visual input to the eye, Klein and Constantine Patton proposed, activates glutamate receptors on certain optical cells, prompting them to form, test, and reform the map's connections. However compelling, though, the model was based on still images of tadpole brains at various time points, Without a method to watch the process unfold in real time, Klein says she felt she would have to abandon her research. That was a pretty dramatic thought, she says. The solution came while flipping through the August 1990 issue of the journal Neuron, which featured a study describing a method of dyeing a frog's neurons and recording how they grow and form connections. Klein ran to her phone and called Fraser, the study's lead investigator who offered to teach Klein his techniques. Klein also switched to a genus of frogs called Xenopus, albino specimens of which are transparent. I just remember reading that paper and saying, oh my god, this is amazing, Klein says. That really opened up a brand new world, actually, and I started to do everything in live imaging. After a second postdoctoral fellowship in Richard Chen's lab at Stanford University in California, Klein set up her first lab at the University of Iowa in 1990, and then moved to Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in 1994. There, she created a technique to introduce light-emitting molecules into individual frog cells. Holly really pioneered this area of in vivo imaging in the frog, says Ellie Nadivi, professor of brain and cognitive sciences at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. When Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory began hosting a series of meetings on Fragile X syndrome in the 1990s, Klein started to see how her work might support studies of neurodevelopmental conditions. Among the attendees was Michael Tranfalia, a doctor whose son had recently been diagnosed with Fragile X, a condition often accompanied by autism. Tranfalia was on a mission to persuade developmental neuroscientists to study the syndrome. 
One name kept coming up over and over again, and that was Holly Klein, he says. He convinced Klein to devote some of her time to investigating how mutations in the FMR1 gene, which cause Fragile X syndrome, affect brain development. It motivated me to be much more broadly informed about various human conditions, Klein says. That was definitely very rewarding for me. In 2008, Klein moved her lab to the Scripps Research Institute, where she continues to oversee research on inhibitory and excitatory neurons and conditions in which their balance is disrupted, as in autism and related conditions. And in 2014, she discovered that frogs that lack FMRP make fewer neurons than frogs that have working copies of the gene. Since 2016, Klein has been director of the Doris Neuroscience Center at the Scripps Research Institute, an airy, open-lab environment that is home to 11 scientists. She sees mentoring younger women as crucial, she says. Her lab meetings regularly include discussions of how to improve representation in science, and she has received both the Scripps Research Institute Outstanding Mentor Award and the Society for Neuroscience's Mika Selpeter Lifetime Achievement Award, specifically for promoting the advancement of women in science. Her job, as she sees it, is to provide the intellectual environment and scholarly environment for people to do the work that is most motivating for them, she says. I really think people work best when they're driven by their own inspiration and their own curiosity, and so I try to foster that in my group. Klein actively encourages event organizers, grant committees, and others in positions of power to feature women in their programs, colleagues say. Nadivi, who did postdoctoral research with Klein, says Klein taught her everything. Klein and Nadivi worked together for only two years more than two decades ago, yet Nadivi says she still considers Klein one of her closest friends. Others among Klein's colleagues and former students describe her as a respectful, supportive leader who doesn't see herself as being above others. As her investigative scope and responsibilities have expanded, Klein says she has continued to consider herself a basic science researcher. Just as much as her work studying autism-related genes has elucidated some of the condition's underpinnings, it has also enabled her to gain a better understanding of the brain as a whole. Studying Rett syndrome, for example, helped Klein answer a fundamental question about cell communication in the brain, a discovery that could in turn lead to a treatment for the genetic condition, which predominantly affects girls and often co-occurs with autism. She'd heard a talk by geneticist Huda Zogby, who discovered the gene that when mutated causes Rett syndrome. Klein was perplexed by how the girls lost previously acquired skills in early childhood. Admittedly based on little more than a hunch, what she describes as, like an idea you have in the shower. Klein theorized that brain cells' typical process of exchanging information using exosomes, or packages of protein, DNA, and RNA, goes awry in children with RET, causing widespread regression in brain function. To test the idea, she enlisted neuroscientist Alison Miotri, who had built a human stem cell model of RET syndrome. Her hunch turned out to be right. In a dish, Rett syndrome neurons form few synapses on their own, but given exosomes from control neurons, they flourish. The strategy in science is, you observe something, you see something happen, and then you kind of push it to change it, Klein says. Based on how it responded to your push, you learn something new. That's all for today. 
Check back on Wednesday for more content from Spectrum Autism Research or go to spectrumnews.org.